0: Hi, I'm Patricia Grubarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer. And welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. Today, we are so lucky to be joined by Howard Jacobson, who is the chief of behavioral science and the co-founder of WellStart Health. Um, he is uh, one of our kin because he is also a PhD. His PhD is in health studies, however, from Temple University. Um, and he did his BA at Princeton. So uh, he's a real slacker. Uh, And so we're lucky to have him here today uh, to talk about his company, WellStart Health. Howard, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with us. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, first of all, and how you got involved with starting WellStart
1: Health? Yeah, um, I spent sort of 15 years in the wilderness. Um, I got a PhD in health studies, and then I somehow stumbled into the world of online marketing. and I stayed there for a long time. And it's it's probably a good thing because I learned a lot about human nature, about how to communicate. But ultimately, it was a, a poor fit for what I wanted to do, which was really to make people well rather than, you know, sell them more cheaply made stuff from China. Um, <laughs> and so I had an opportunity. I had made friends um, with... A guy who who has been a, a hero of mine for for many years, T. Colin Campbell, who wrote a book called The China Study, which had a huge influence on me, and I reviewed it on Amazon. And one day I got a call out of the blue from him thanking me for the review, and we became friends. And in 2011, he asked if I would help him collaborate on his next book called Whole: Rethinking the Science of Nutrition, and I did, and I'm very happy. I did I, I was thinking you know I, there's absolutely no strategic benefit to my online marketing <laughs> career from doing this but but it turned out to be the slingshot that it helped push me back into my first love which was which was health and helping people to heal and lead better lives. And from there um I would I became a little bit known in sort of the health community and the nutrition community and um, I got really interested in the fact that all this information was known. Like, there's so much that's known about how to be healthy, and we yeah. we can disagree on the the details, but certainly no one thinks, you know, Fruit Loop and sitting on the couch watching, um, you know, reruns of Cheers is a, is a, a formula for a healthy life, and yet people still weren't doing it. And so I became very interested in what what do we know about habit change about behavior change about about lifestyle change and i had gotten my phd in 1999 in health studies and, and what i had learned had never impressed me as being particularly useful sort of the health belief model and precede proceed and just model after model that really didn't seem to have any bearing on how people actually behaved you know it's like someone smoking cigarettes was going to suddenly Realized that smoking cigarettes was bad for them and they would stop. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that that doesn't happen very much, but we're, we're supposed to be rational actors. And in 2011, when I started researching it again, I discovered there was this whole world of behavioral science, of behavioral economics. There are people who've won Nobel Prizes in the irrationality and the wonderful messiness of the human mind. And I dove into that and began testing things out, started a, uh, some small coaching programs, um, saw what was working and wasn't working, reached out to lots of other professionals. I have my own podcast, so I was able to, you know, you know how it is when you call someone and they're like w- are willing to talk to you for an hour and you're like thrilled.
0: Yeah, like how we feel <laughs> right now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like, oh
1: my god, I can't believe I got so-and-so on the phone for an hour and all I have to do is promise to, you know, publish it. And mm-hmm. and so I I um I sort of built built up um, a, a knowledge base of what works. Then the next thing that happened was um I wrote another book called Proteinaholic with a um, a bariatric surgeon down, who was down in Houston, Texas, Garth Davis. And that book was, again, about nutrition and all about how we everyone's scared of either fat or carbs and protein gets a pass. And so all we think is, you know, as long as it has protein on the label, then it's good for us. And so this was a book looking at the science of that. And through, through that book... I met a guy named Josh Lajani, who Garth Davis posted on Facebook, a before and after picture of him, which was just astounding. It looked like two, not only two different people, but two different species, mm-hmm. like, the, like the before 420 pound guy and the after he was just crossing the finish line from a marathon. Wow. And, and all this was done in about three or four years. And so I was, I was looking for another book to write and I thought this guy might be interesting. And we got on the phone and, you know, very charismatic. He's got an accent, you know, as as thick as granite from the bayou of Louisiana. Um, and we decided to do a book together. And so he, he came up to, to stay in my town and we worked, you know, nine to five for four days um, on putting a book together. And in the mornings we, you know, I said, Hey, well, let's, let's go for a run together. And so he showed up and took me on this run, which was like twice as fast and hard as anything I'd ever done. And I was, you know, it was like seven mile run and I was completely shattered by the end of it. And at that point, with all my knowledge about health and wellness and behavior, I was still about 20 pounds overweight. And I was like, "That's all right, you know i I wear vertical stripes. I I don't tuck my (laughs) I don't tuck my shirt in. I have short legs and and a long torso, so people don't even realize that I'm short and chubby. Like, no big deal. And after getting like my butt kicked by this guy who used to be 420 pounds on a little run, I I didn't feel right, and so. I realized as I was like doing the last couple of miles and just, you know, my lungs were burning and my legs were aching that I kept thinking, well, Josh, that's easy for you. You're not 20 pounds overweight. As soon as I had the thought, I realized how stupid that was. Like like to say that to a guy who had once weighed 420 pounds and he didn't understand what I was going through. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Later that day, as we were, we took a break, I had the courage to admit my silly thought, and we both had a little laugh the day after we went for another run, and he shows up in a twenty pound weighted vest this time he didn't run with me, he ran ahead of me, so i had wow. to I had to kind of keep up like he he would stop at the top of the hill to make sure that I wasn't like you know roadkill but right. aside, <laughs> aside from that he was he was going forward, he was not coddling and you know keep up or not. And at the end, I just found so much inspiration in the way he looked at the world and in how he turned his, what he called, you know, bipedal locomotion into an identity and the way he talked about the need for human beings to move naturally. And when he was talking about food, about changing from a very, very rich Cajun diet of, you know, the the most decadent foods on the planet to a very, very simple, what most people would consider extreme and austere diet of mostly unprocessed plant foods, that he wasn't doing it the way most people were talking about it. He wasn't trying to make it as easy as possible. He wasn't trying to manipulate his environment so that he would never have to exhibit willpower. He was really treating it more like a warrior than... Mm -hmm. A an engineer or a bureaucrat, and he and getting connected with him really changed how I understood the research. It's not that I didn't believe the research, but I saw it through a new light. And so we started working on a book, and we started working on a program. And we've we've now tested out this this program with about 150 people, and we've just yesterday. Today's Monday, right? Yesterday, we yeah. released yep. um, the book version of the program um, on Amazon Kindle. It's called "Sick to Fit," and we we took we took that program uh, when we joined Wellstart Health because they they had a vision that we didn't have. We were going to do this tiny little lifestyle business, maybe working with two hundred people a year. And Wellstart Health has this vision of working with millions of people through employers. Through scaling with technology, through training coaches, and you know, when we saw the big vision of what our program could become, we we jumped on it, and that's where we are today.
0: That's awesome! Um, really cool story of how you got involved with uh, the idea of WellStart and bringing this program to a greater number of people. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what the program does for people and what sort of the core tenets of it are so that uh, the listeners can better understand what people are doing when they come to WellStart Health?
1: Yep. So the the core tenet, and and since WellStart Health is really about disease reversal, uh, disease mitigation, is most people think that their disease is beyond their control that, oh, well, everyone in my family got heart disease or, you know, we all have diabetes or, well, that's just, you know, the roll of the dice. And they don't realize that most of us, most of the time have a tremendous amount of agency in determining our health and our health destiny. So the the key element of the program is that you, the client are the locus of control for your own health. And so, we you know, we deal with, conditions and diseases that are very amenable to lifestyle change, like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, autoimmune disease, obesity, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, things that we know for 99.9% of the population, if they do things different, they get different results. Um, and so the, the three aspects of the program are menu, movement, and mindset. Mindset. And menu is simply the food we put in our bodies. Movement is you know what a lot of people like to call exercise or workouts. we We like to conceptualize it as movement. because um, you know, for me, exercise just seems like a chore. And movement feels like you know what a body does when it's not dead. And um more
2: positive, yeah.
1: And mindset is kind of everything else. So it's um you know how we think about habit change, how we think about ourselves, how we approach. Um, stress resilience. Um, we throw sleep in there, but it doesn't start with M. So I guess we could call it, you know, Morpheus or something. <laughs> well, I'm going to write that so be down. Be creative. <laughs> right. Um, but really, you know, so it's so it's the elements, the known elements of of lifestyle, and we really focus on teaching people how to gain control of their own habits. So rather than like a a food-based program that gives you um, meal plans and recipes and shopping lists, we work with you on, so why do you have that craving? What can you do about the craving? Um, How can you deal with peer pressure? How can you deal with traditions and holidays? What do you do when you're about to go out to dinner and you're going to be eating at a place where... It's going to be hard for you to choose a, a meal that supports your goals, values, and, and priorities. So we work with people on strengthening their ability to act the way they want to. And our view is that it's a muscle. It's most people think of like, am I um, am I good or am I bad? Did I did I succeed in the diet or did I fail? And people think of it in terms of a character trait or willpower or self discipline. When it, it's, it's that's just as ridiculous if somebody, you took a five-year-old, you put him down in front of a piano and you asked him to play Rachmaninoff and they just, you know, banged on the keys and you told them, well, you obviously don't have the character or willpower to be a piano player, <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so we know that you know, yeah. changing lifestyles, changing habits, changing behaviors is a muscle and it, it takes education and it takes training. And so that's what our program really does.
2: I think that's so important. Um, I completely agree with what you're saying about the muscle piece because a lot of people do look at this as a character flaw, right? If you're not healthy for some reason, it's because of who you are or um, any of that. And I think it's really important to refocus people's perception of that because that gets to that mindset piece that you're talking about. If you believe it's because of your character, then how are you going to be able to make that change because you're already down on yourself in that moment?
1: Right. And and most people have plenty of evidence that they can't stick to the program. Right. Whatever the program is. Right? Mm-hmm. They, right. Especially people who come to us who are overweight or obese. They're not coming to us saying, wow, I never thought of dieting before. What, what an interesting idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They come to us already condemned because they failed at South Beach. They failed at Atkins. They failed at... Uh, Weight Watchers, they failed at the Hollywood cookie diet. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's like, well, if I failed at everything, then it's got to be me. And so they come to us, you know, a lot of people sort of this is you know, the last chance program. Uh, but they also come in pre-defeated. The thing that, that people tell us has been most empowering is when we explain the evolutionary biology of obesity, Meaning that, that our bodies are, are perfectly matched to an environment of nutrient scarcity. So there's nothing wrong with the fact that we have sweet tooth. People always go, you know, oh, I have a sweet tooth. I can't. Well, you know what? If, you did have, if your ancestor didn't have sweet tooths and pass it on to you, you, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. right? You wouldn't have <laughs> survived. So people feel validated very often for the first time when they understand that this is normal and natural behavior but we're in an abnormal and unnatural environment. And then the second piece is we explain to them the reason you failed every single time in the past is that you didn't build it as a muscle. You saw it as a character trait, you hung on, you started a diet, you you muscled through for 3 weeks or a month, but then the first time you had a slip up, it felt like oh well, I fell off the wagon and everything goes to pieces instead of approaching slip-ups as inevitable, as teaching tools, and in fact, as as essential parts of the journey.
2: Yeah. I think the muscle descriptor makes a lot of sense to me because I'm just thinking like when you start working out, right, you start lifting weights, you're going to start with a lower weight and maybe you're not going to be able to do 10 reps the first time and the next time you can. So you just keep going back and trying and trying and trying and working on it um, versus – you Oh, I didn't get to 10 reps. Well, I'll never get to 10 reps. And then you walk away. I think most people understand that you're going to keep working at that. Um, so I think that analogy makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah, I think the comedian Stephen Wright once said, you know, I walked my dog to Florida. Then I said, there, you're done.
0: no more walks right (laughs) got it all done in one yeah i think it's interesting too because there are a lot of parallels between what you're saying and what we talk about in our podcast with regard to work you know thinking about uh how people you can give an employee a list of instructions for a task and they can know perfectly well what they're supposed to do but They may not be motivated to actually complete that task or complete it well unless they understand why they're doing it, if they run against a challenge, what to do to overcome it, if they fail at something, how to overcome that, uh, try again. So it's similar in the workplace that it's not just about knowing exactly what it is that you're supposed to do because a lot of us, as you said, know what we need to do from a nutrition standpoint or have some idea of what we need to do from a nutrition standpoint. It's more about being able to to understand how to activate that motivation to, in the moment, make those choices. Um, so I think that's a really nice parallel and something that um, I'm hoping as, as everyone's listening that uh, you're making those connections as well.
1: Yeah. And c- can I say another word about motivation?
0: Yeah. Sure. Which
1: is... Like one of the things that gets people is they, they get real excited when they get when they start. And then one day they wake up and they're unmotivated and they think that's a problem. <laughs> and not only do they think it's a problem, they think it's a deal breaker. Like, oh, where did the motivation go? I don't want to get out of bed. And so we re- we tell people that that's going to happen. And the motivation is a great thing to get us started, but it's not a great Thing to keep us going. Motivation is not sustainable because it's Mm -hmm. so fickle and we can't will ourselves to want something that we don't want in the moment. So we really, you know, so everyone who's ever held down a job for more than a a week and a half understands that you can do things even when you're not motivated. Right. (laughs) You can get up and go to work even if you don't, you want to stay in bed. You, you know, you (laughs) take your kids to the doctor, even if you don't feel like it like most people do things that they're not motivated to do but somehow we think that th- the world of health of fitness of nutrition of taking care of ourselves requires motivation as opposed to i'm motivated enough to make a decision now that i'm going to stick with because i'm the sort of person who keeps my commitments so i got up this morning it was kind of cold um i woke up at um, you know quarter to 6 I went for a run in the dark. I did not feel like it. I didn't enjoy it. it I wasn't, you know, there weren't bluebells and bluebirds and rainbows and unicorns <laughs> and butterflies fl- flooding around me while I was running. It rained yesterday. I stepped in a puddle and I I got back and like, okay, you know what? Enjoyment is not required. Some mornings I get up and, and I have runs that are, you know, they're like, um, like ballet sequences. They're just, you know, they just feel so right and joyful and other mornings it just sucks. And the point is, it doesn't matter to me which one it is. I'm just going to go and grind it out and do it anyway.
0: Yeah. I think that's really interesting because certainly, you know, there's, An ebb and a flow to everyone's motivation um, on the job. And you can do what you can. And in life, you can do what you can to enhance your motivation by helping people understand why. And I think that's some of what you're talking about is you're committed to it because you know it's important. You might not feel like taking your kid to the doctor, but you're not gonna say, well, sorry, too bad for you if you're sick, because you understand why they have to go to the doctor and that why supersedes the fact that you might not feel like it right now. Um, and I think it's similar uh with, you know, work or other kinds of things where maybe the task you're doing right now might not be your favorite thing, but you understand the broader purpose. And that's what you're latched into, not just the moment to moment enjoyment. But I understand that if I want to be a healthy person who has healthy outcomes, that I need to be committed to this. And that's enough to get me going as opposed to the actual need for it always to be the happiest, most fun, most beautiful unicorn-y ride in the, or run in the world.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's it's almost more than I the why is that I want to be healthy the the why is really like an identity, like I am the sort of person who does the things that healthy people do like mm-hmm. when when your kid's sick, I think some you know for me some part of it was like I'm getting up at you know I remember getting up at three in the morning, my daughter has this stomach ache, she's pointing to the place where I think vaguely there might be an appendix behind it, <laughs> and she's got a fever, and I'm like, ah. Oh. You know what this means? This means we're going down to the pediatric emergency room because I'm the sort of parent who doesn't go back to sleep when my kid could be dying of appendicitis. Right. <laughs> and it, right. It really, you know, it, at, at some level, it's identity. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I'm, you know, as if you stay up late to finish a work assignment that you had promised, you may not even think like you might be thinking, you know what, this is kind of a BS assignment. This isn't a big deal. I think it's a um, a silly initiative. But you're thinking, I'm the sort of person who keeps their word. I'm the sort of person who's dependable. I'm the sort of person who everyone wants on their team. And I think that's even a deeper level yeah. of, of, of motivation than I want to be healthy. Yeah, Because, because it's more persistent and it's, it's more global.
0: Yeah. So how do you grow that? So um, we have uh, something in our literature called organizational identification and job identification, which is similar to what you're saying. It has very strong um, impacts on people's ability to be productive and persist. Um, so So exactly what you're saying definitely resonates. How do you grow that kind of identification with health in people if they didn't feel they had it before? How do you get them from point A where they're coming to you and saying, I'm having all these issues. I've failed at all these other diets. Um, what does that process look like um, from a, from an individual perspective?
1: Well, I think one, one thing is every, everyone already has a, a positive identity around something, whether it's as a parent, a partner, an employee, a business owner, a, a community member, a church elder, you know, you know, people are not uniformly broken and incompetent, right? So even so, like, I'm always amazed that people, you know, who could be so incompetent around their health are still highly competent in other areas of their life. So one thing, you know, we simply just break down the barrier that that health and, you know, body size and, and fitness is somehow different. What, so, we, you know, people already have the tools to be successful. They just never thought to apply them in this area before. Um, so, you know, what, one of the bits of research that's really interesting um, is whether you speak in terms of nouns or verbs. Uh, so we work a lot on language with our clients. So the, one of the research bits was they were asking people, um, are you planning on voting in an upcoming election or are you planning on being a voter? in the upcoming election. And when they asked people the noun question, like, are you a voter? Many more of them, they, they said yes, many more of them committed to that because now they saw it as their identity. Mm-hmm. So we talk about w- way, you know, all the ways in which we use language to either support or undermine our intentions. And really the, you know the, the ultimate goals of this program are to get people to be honest with themselves, and to get people to keep their word to others and to themselves. So it's not, it's not like this foreign concept. <clears throat> For example, one, one of the, the mantras of our program, which was uh, developed by Josh, is that results dictate sufficiency. And so anyone who's ever done a day of work in their life understands this, that you, you, don't, you, you judge your work by what it accomplishes, you know. If, if if you're doing a marketing piece and you put together a web page and nobody buys, we don't say, "Well, you successfully did a web page." Mm-hmm. You say, "Well, you, you know, you didn't. You didn't achieve the the results you wanted to achieve." So, you know, there's, it, there's all these different sort of management by objectives for the last, you know, sixty or seventy years since Drucker, uh, Peter Drucker, uh, introduced the concept. You know, Google and and Intel and Facebook have their, their objectives and key results. Like everybody understands that you you set um you set metrics for success and you act, and then you measure your actions against those metrics for success. So you can do the same thing around A one C for for uh, diabetes or cholesterol or weight. Um, you can do the same thing about your you know how long it takes you to walk a mile around the block. And you know you set you set the goals, and then you develop action plans and carry them out and you just and you see, "Oh, is this plan getting me to my goals or not?" So you can be very matter of fact and dispassionate about it, which takes a lot of the pain and guilt and self-flagellation out of the equation.
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense, I think, because. Uh, instead of thinking about it as this, there's one way to do it. There's an end all be all way of making this happen for every person. And if you can't stick to it, or you're not capable of getting that that going for yourself, then that's the end of the road that same like sort of, uh, you know, I I failed once, so I'm just done. I'm not, that program's not for me or whatever. This idea of being able to look at the data and say, okay, well, what's not working? Tweaking things, um, making adjustments, and it's not a personal failure. It's trying to calibrate things that will work for you and will help you get to your goals based on the data that you're seeing come in, um, which I think is a really good way of of separating that uh, emotional anguish piece from just the rational, logical part of planning for success. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the research results that you found with people in the program, so that the listeners could have a sense of uh, the scope of what kinds of success stories you've seen um, from a collective perspective, or even from an individual perspective. Um, just so people can get a sense of the magnitude of what you're coaching people to do. Um,
1: yeah, it was interesting. I just um, was looking at the, you know the early reviews of our book on Amazon, and one of our um, you know early. Um, program adopters was writing about how the program affected her. And she's, she has been like a fit triathlete for like a year and a half now. So I kind of forgot mm-hmm. where, where she came from, but she, she, she reminded me in the, in the review, she'd lost 60 pounds and she was not an athlete before that. But, but, and, and so what, what really, um, you know, st- strikes me is that, that people will have, will get the results. like, They will reverse diseases. They'll get off their meds. Uh, They will lose a a bunch of weight, but this is you know this is all like byproduct. It's all symptomatic. What what people really say is like I got my life back. Um, I now like whatever the challenge, I'm I'm now capable of of bringing all my resources to bear in a in a reasonable. Rationable, strate- Rationable, rational, strategic, rational, rational, strategic way uh, to to deal with it. The thing, things are no. I'm no longer the victim of my these impulses that I, that I'm sort of riding. You know, the the um, I think it's the Heath brothers have this uh, have a book. Um, I think it's called Switch about how yeah. to change when change is hard. I think that's the one where they talk about the rider and the elephant.
0: Yes, that's the one. You got it right.
1: So. <laughs> A lot of people feel like they, their will, their desire is like this teeny little puny rider on top of this elephant that they simply don't know how to control reliably. You asked me about um, you know, spe- specific cases or research. We find that the people who participate, who show up, um, tend to lose the, the weight that they need to lose, and they tend to become athletes. Of one kind or another, and it seemed seemed extreme when I was starting out. Like, you know, we're just trying to help people get a little bit bit healthy. We're not trying to turn them into athletes, into triathletes, or runners, or swimmers, uh, or kickboxers, or whatever. But it it it's almost like to think of a human being not as an athlete really takes a certain context, (laughs) and it's not a very natural one. Like, if you think about you know the history of human beings on this planet. Like we had to be runners. We had to be hunters. We had to be gatherers. We had to be builders. We had to cover our territories and we had to do it in a, in a, in a fairly robust way. And like that is our evolutionary heritage and that's our privilege. And so what we see for people who embrace the program, who show up, who, uh, you know, do the things like when they, when they have a slip up go through various assessments that we have them go through to, to learn from it and, and um, make changes for next time that they find that their identity shifts into like, I'm a human athlete and that's, you know, that's really the most, the most gratifying thing. So we'll, <coughs> we, you know, in our, in our um, group discussions, people will post races that they're going to run and other, Oh, that one looks like fun. That's it. You know, let's maybe I'll come up and we'll meet and we can run that one together. Um, you know, and and this is not to scare away people who are, you know, three hundred and fifty pounds and can't imagine walking a quarter of a mile without needing to sit down, because that's exactly where Josh was, Josh Lajani, our co-founder. That's where he started. So we're not asking people to to start kidding out for Everest, but you can't you can't see Everest until you get to Base Camp. And once you get to base camp, you're a different person than you were when you started out. So that's that's really um what we see from you know sort of big picture, in terms of yes people reverse chronic disease they lose weight um, their times in you know get better at, for for walks or runs or swims they come home to their authentic selves and I think you know hu- human beings who you know how many people have you heard will say well I'm not a runner right or I'm, I don't I don't like sweating I'm not you know like I never saw a bird acting like, well, I'm not a flyer, you know, (laughs) or a fish, you know, I'll just, I'll just float upside down on the top of the tank, you know, you know, if they're not moving, that's because they're dead. And so when, if we are not moving, then then we're not being authentic and there's nothing that we can do intellectually or emotionally that's going to make up for that. So what I see is that people get moving because now they're moving they want to fuel themselves appropriately for the movement that they're doing as efficiently as possible and through trial and error with you know we'll guide them but through trial and error they'll discover exactly what that is so they're not going to simply read a book and say okay now I know how to eat they're going to they're going to do you know their end of one experiments they're going to figure out how to deal with the stressors in their lives and you know, by by moving towards this identity of authentic human athlete, everything else just sort of falls into place without having to micromanage it.
2: I find that so fascinating. The whole identity of the athlete coming out of this program, um, it it makes a lot of sense based on what you're saying. But I've never have, would have initially thought that that is what ends up happening. And I think I do see some parallels too with the workplace. You know, if you go in and you're maybe not the highest performer or you're still learning, you know, if you identify as the thing that you want to be, it's, you'll start correcting your course as you struggle to get to where you want to be as well. Um, but with that, I did have a question in terms of how you personally use this in your life. So you've co-founded a company, you're writing a lot of books, you're an entrepreneur. How do you use what you've learned through the program that you've created um, in your own life to balance your work and make sure you're still being that athlete?
1: Mm. Well, one one thing I discovered, and this was from, from Josh's influence, is how important it is for me to walk or jog or run miles pretty much every day. Like I'll take a day off and there's days where I won't run, but I'll just walk. But if I'm not moving... Bipedally around my neighborhood or in a park, like I turn into a real jerk. <laughs> like, like, but you know, before I understood this, and like my family didn't quite know what to say to me when I was just, you know, grumpy. They would just like try to avoid me. Now they'll say, You need to go for a run. <laughs> like, like, they've discovered, you know, they've discovered my medicine along with me that. That, the, that moving vigorously on two legs and, and moving my body through space, you know, first of all, it, it, um, it supports all my brain work, right? There's all this good evidence that, uh, we, you know, movement um, allows the body or, or triggers the body to release uh, BDNF, uh, brain-derived neurotropic factor, um, which is like the, the smart chemical, and and if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective it totally makes sense like our brains are these giant glucose hogs they're the most you know energy gluttonous part of our body and of course we don't want to use them unless absolutely necessary and if we're just sort of sitting around or lying around there's nothing new we don't we don't have to like ruminate or think about stuff if nothing's changing but when we're out in the savanna walking around encountering new things facing challenges trying to figure out how to escape from the saber toothed tiger or or bring down the the spring buck, then that's when we would need our brains, so that movement triggers the brain into high, into high action. So if I if I don't move for a couple of days, I can feel myself getting duller. Uh, movement is also the, my number one treatment for stress. You know, if, if you think about stress and where it comes from physiologically, it's it's stress is the body's signal that there's some danger that needs to be dealt with. And the main ways the body deals with it is to run away or fight, right? Fight or flight. And so if I'm sitting at my desk and all of a sudden an email comes in and I've forgotten to do something and I feel like this wave of stress and I'm sitting, then I'm actually causing trauma because the body needs to act to mitigate the stress. So when I go for runs, I'm actually taking all that stored up stress, and I'm doing what evolution, you know, instructed me to do, which is to to run and exert, and then it can just sort of it sort of melts away. So I would say that adding physical movement to my life on a daily basis is the number one thing that solves almost every other problem I have around work-life balance, around time. Like when I, when I run during the day, or or do a workout, or do martial arts, or garden hard. I sleep better at night. And when I sleep better at night, I have more energy during the day. I'm less likely to have cravings for, for sugary foods just because I'm falling asleep. Like for me, movement is the the single, if it was a pill and I and I owned the patent, I would be a wealthy man indeed.
0: Yeah, that's like really, I think that's a really important thing for us to root ourselves in remembering what the purpose of movement is. And we often think about, Um, movement as sort of something that you add on to the end of your day um, as a way to check off a box, but not something that feeds the rest of the activities that you have to get done the following day or, you know, that you would have been doing the, the day before you went out for your run or whatever the case may be. So I think that's really important reminder for people that this is sort of Uh, it gives you fuel. It's not something that you need to muster up fuel to go do um, in in that sense that uh, it actually will give you the the benefit of having more energy to be able to move forward because you sleep better and those other things that you mentioned. Um, So if there are some tips that you might give our listeners to get started on this journey, um, towards discovering this kind of identity, um, or being able to engage in—you uh, mentioned your habit is movement, um, and that a lot of the folks in your program use movement um, as a as a way to latch onto the the program itself or getting themselves into this uh, athlete mentality. So, what are some initial steps that people can take to start creating that identity in themselves?
1: So the f- the the first thing is. To recognize why and how you may have tripped yourself up in the past. So it's like that, you know, scene in Groundhog Day where Bill Murray keeps stepping into the icy puddle um, (laughs) off the curb. And then one day he remembers and he walks around it. Mm -hmm. And so if we if we. Have typical patterns like okay, this is the thing I always do. Like, let's learn what that is. for For a lot of people, the thing that tips them up is perfectionism. Like, okay, so I'm I just heard Howard say that I should move, so I'm going to go. You know, dust out my old running shoes, and I'm going to do six miles tomorrow, when I maybe haven't run in five years, mm-hmm. right? Because because I got to do it right. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. Right. So that is a and whether it's movement or okay, I'm gonna th- I'm gonna clean out my pantry, I'm gonna throw out all the bad food, and I'm only gonna eat good food from now on. You know, if you can do that, fine. I'm not saying not to take the biggest step you can take, but for most people, change looks like some 180, some big New Year's resolution. January 1st, never gonna have another cigarette. January 1st, gonna wake up at 5 a.m. and go to the gym. And if the leap is too big, that's a formula for failure, mm-hmm. and you may you you may not even want to succeed, right? So if, if you keep doing things like that, it's like the part of you that just wants to binge and sit on the couch is very happy. Like oh, it's a great strategy for you to you know try this, but in three weeks we'll be we'll be fine again. We'll be we'll be doing our old thing, gain, gaining weight and getting sicker. So I would I would suggest that someone think about. What habit they would like to add to their lives, and then divide it by a hundred, and do one percent of it. So if someone says, "Okay, I'm going to eat healthy from now on," and they say, "Well, what is that going to mean?" I'm going to start every lunch and dinner with a salad. Okay, Mm -hmm. you know I I do that, but if you're starting out, why don't you start every lunch or dinner with a baby carrot, Mm -hmm. and and say, "Okay, this is my new rule: baby carrot before before lunch, baby carrot before dinner," because that's doable. Mm-hmm. right? Like no, no one's going to wake up. No one's going to be like, oh man, I just don't have the time to make a baby carrot.
2: <laughs> if you're growing yeah. it, maybe you will. Right.
1: right. You you whittle it from big carrots. Then, then, then you might have a problem. But like you, like, you know, there've been times where I'm like, nah, I don't feel like making a salad, right? Like that sounds like a work, but get a baby carrot out of the, out of the little baggie in the, in the vegetable drawer, eat it. And then you've done your thing. And what that's like, is that going to change your health destiny? Not by itself. But the first, if you do that and you do it consistently and you do it every day, no excuses, a bunch of things will happen. One is you're going to start seeing yourself as a baby carrot eater as opposed to someone who eats baby carrots. Right. Which is which can then morph into like I'm someone who cares about my health. I'm someone who can keep a commitment to myself. So it's success is the thing that causes us to squirt dopamine when the habit itself isn't fun. Right. Like so if I, um, you know, eat a Snickers bar, I get an immediate rush of dopamine because my body is saying hmm, lots of calories. Good in case of a famine. If I eat a baby carrot, my body is not sending me that hit of dopamine. But when I eat the carrot and I recognize I just ate a carrot, how cool is that? I was the guy who used to have five cheeseburgers for lunch, and now I'm starting with a carrot. You get a squirt of dopamine because you were successful. And so now you can build on that. And now add something else. Add a couple of uh, celery stalks or add a little bit of lettuce. And you can build your way very quickly with this compounding habit growth to a place where The habits just accrete naturally as opposed to you trying to artificially like be something that you're not, which just looks like plate spinning until you get exhausted or distracted or overwhelmed and you drop all the plates.
2: Yeah. I think that's awesome. I think there's, I was just going to add, there's a lot of research behind goal attainment, goal achievement, how to set those right goals. And so this really resonates with me is starting small and achievable and have it be sustainable um, is something that will really help people drive that to that end result that they're looking for. You start small and you work your way up and you build your way up and you make those goals so that you can celebrate, so that you can actually recognize and feel like you are achieving um, what you set out to do. So I think you're right. I think it really has a lot to do with how people um, see themselves is that they can achieve the goals that they set out for themselves and they're going to feel much more positively. And that positive energy is going to keep them moving to the next goal.
1: Yep. Ab- absolutely. That this is this is all about momentum and identity. And so that means when when you slip up, like let's say one day you don't have your carrot, then you go, "Oh, well, so I'm the sort of person who eats a carrot every day. What happened? Like something something happened that I can learn from." Mm-hmm. And I can use that to get stronger. Like, "Oh, I you know, there were I went out to lunch with people and I felt embarrassed. So now we've got something to work on.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think this has been so, so helpful, Howard, uh, in getting some really great information and knowledge about uh, personal health and Becoming the type of person who cares about their health and acts that way, um, and so I think that this is really this has really been useful. I know our listeners will garner a lot. I've learned a lot uh, listening to you as well, um, and we're so grateful for your time. Is there anything else that you think our listeners should know uh, before we wrap up with our last, final, fun question for you?
1: Um, I would say smart people do hard things. Right? That this is—we're not saying this is easy. Mm-hmm. But you think of anyone who has accomplished anything they they worked for it, and this is worth working for too. and doing the not only that smart people do hard things, but people who do hard things tend to get smart
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's a that's a good point. I think we all everybody listening, uh, I think likes the idea of being smarter uh, and also is usually willing to work hard uh in the workspace but it's about flipping that mentality to also think about it with regard to your personal health which if that's not going well um you can't do anything that you need to do at work so um but it's something people don't often think about uh in that in that way so yeah uh, a,
1: fr- a friend of mine Dr. Joel Kahn wrote a book called Dead Execs Don't Get Bonuses
0: that's true true. uh maybe royalties or something like that but (laughs) (laughs) um okay well uh thank you so much we have one last question for you which is a final fun question and that is if you could meet any famous person living or dead who would it be
1: oh it has to be famous
0: oh it doesn't have to be famous i (laughs) guess
1: because I was thinking about this, I I would like to meet myself at 120.
0: <laughs> that's a good one.
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll be famous by then, but I I didn't want to count on that. I I'm satisfied <laughs> if I'm just alive at 120.
0: <laughs> I think that's a pretty good thing to be satisfied with. That's a very interesting response. What would what would you ask yourself?
1: Oh, goodness. Um I I think I'd I'd want to know uh, well, you know, you know, who, who won the Preakness in 2019, certainly. I would want to know what I'm, what I'm worried about now. That's absolutely silly yeah. <laughs> because I, I, I mm-hmm. certainly know the answer to that for every year p- previous to this one. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I feel like I just, uh, my brain doesn't burn clean because I have so many anxieties. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I feel like my 120-year-old self would be the best person to reassure me uh, that most of them are are purely fantastical and there's only a few that I really need to focus on.
2: Good answer. I like it. Telling you what to let go of. I like that. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much again for joining us, Howard. We really appreciate your time. We really appreciate your insights. Um, we are very grateful that you spent the time with us today and I'm sure our listeners did too. Thank you so much for telling us more about, well, start health and all the work you've done. I am actually going to go look at your book now because I am very fascinated by everything we've discussed and I can't wait to read it. Cool. Well, so it's thank you it's again for joining it's us.
1: 99 cents on Kindle. You better get it now before it becomes free. don't don't delay
2: I'll I'll rush over there that's awesome Um, but I can't wait to read it and we will definitely post a link to all of that for our listeners in the show notes if you're interested to learn more Um, but again thank you so much for your time
1: Katrina Patricia thank you so much this was such a fun conversation
2: yeah
0: we had a great time talking to you too and uh, best of luck all of our listeners uh, take Howard's advice and become the human athlete as an identity, I think that's a good good goal to strive for. So thank you so much, Howard, and everyone have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye.
2: Bye. Thank you again for listening. If you'd like some more information about Howard and the work he's done, you can find more information about Wellstart Start Health at wellstarthealth.com. He also has a podcast called Plant Yourself. So please feel free to go listen and hear more about what he does and his work. Um, You can also reach out to us. Let us know your thoughts, how you're creating this athlete identity for yourself. You can find us at WorkerBeing.com. You can email us at WorkerBeing at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at WorkerBeing. Thank you for listening. Bye. The WorkerBeing podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabaric and Katina Sawyer and produced by Allie Johnson. Thank oh. you.